I'd like to be up high. I feel like I need an oxygen mask. Goodness, there are always this many steps. It was nice preaching on the level ground. Um, no, it's, it's good to be back inside. It, it is. There's, there's something nice about being back inside. Um, but I want to make one thing clear. This is not real church and what we were doing outside the past couple weeks, like church light, right? This is not better than what we were doing outside the past couple weeks. Like Matt started us with, hallowed be your name. Is God's name any more holy because we are inside walls? Is God's name any greater because we are inside walls, because there's a ceiling over us? Is the worship we lift, the songs we sing, the praise we give, does it mean anything more because we have a ceiling over our heads? No. Okay, so this is, like I said, I almost wore my uh, I'm Sam and I'm excited shirt today. Like, I'm excited for us to be back in here. And I'm excited for one day when we have everybody back in and when this is full. And I'm excited for one day when we have more people in here than we have physical seats in the building. I'm excited for all those things. But don't make the mistake of thinking that what people have been doing the past couple weeks outside is any less of a beautiful expression of church just because it's been in city parks or things like that, okay? Um, This morning we'll be continuing looking at Jesus' life. Specifically, we'll be looking at Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. We'll be looking at the first 21 verses. If you want to turn there, go there in your app. If you're at home and you pull it up on the computer or anything like that, But we'll be in John 3, we'll be looking at his conversation with Nicodemus, and it's just such a fascinating, this is the first time Jesus talks about salvation with someone and walks through salvation with someone, and it's really such an interesting conversation. But before we begin, please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are holy, we thank you that you are indescribable, we thank you that you are sovereign. It is, it is such a joy and a privilege to get to gather with brothers and sisters and lift your name up and let us never lose sight of that. Let church never become anything other than being your body. And so now as we prepare to open your word, God, we ask that this would be a continued time of worship, that we would come before you hearts submitted to you that we would come before you humbly to kneel at your feet and to learn from you, God. Please don't ever, ever let these be my words. Don't ever let me try and do this on my own because that is a guaranteed recipe for failure. Teach me to be submitted in this time. Teach us as people to be submitted as we listen to your word. We want to know you. We want to know you more. We want to know you better so that we can make you known. We want our lives to look like Christ. And we ask that you would speak to us and mold us and refine us in these coming moments. We thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've got John, John 3, and I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to take time and we're going to look at it. And pay attention, there's kind of two halves to this conversation. There's the first half, it'll be the first 10 verses, verses 1 through 10, and this is really the introduction. It's when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, it's the question Nicodemus asks without asking, it's the question that Jesus refuses to address and instead goes to the heart of the matter, and then the second half, verses 11 through 21, are where Jesus really lays out what salvation is. 
And so listen for that break as we read through, but we'll read through it and then we'll go back and we'll talk about each part. This is John 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God, or carried out in God, I'm sorry. And that's one conversation with Nicodemus, and it's such a deep, rich conversation. And so I want to start with, because I think sometimes there's the danger of making assumptions, I want to start with, who is Nicodemus? What is a Pharisee? Right? It says, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came to Jesus. And Pharisees were the, the word Pharisee came from the word separate, to separate. And so the name Pharisees literally meant separated ones. They were Jews who had taken themselves out of Jewish culture and said, we're better than you. We are different from you. We are better than you. They separated themselves based on their clothes, based on the food they ate, based on their protocols, based on all the rituals they followed, based on all the laws they enacted and they observed frequently. So the Pharisees looked upon themselves as we are better than the average Jew, right? We are the separated ones. And Nicodemus wasn't just a Pharisee. What does it say? Because every word in Scripture is deliberate. It says, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. Because within the Pharisees, and when you look at the language of that, the ruler of the Jews, or a ruler of the Jews, when you look at the Pharisees, within this group of separate ones, you had the Sanhedrin, 71 men who had separated themselves from the separated ones. And they were the authorities over the, over the Pharisees, and they were the then ultimate authorities over the people of Israel, right? They, they dominated the social and cultural world of the Israelites, of the Jews. And so Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin, of the Pharisees. And then Jesus later on refers to him, he says, are you not the teacher of Israel? 
And in the original language, he uses that definitive the, right? And so the language implies that within the Sanhedrin, there were also those who were tasked with setting the standards and with teaching. And so Nicodemus is not just a Pharisee. He is a member of the Sanhedrin. And he is not just a member of the Sanhedrin. He is a member of the top of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus is a man whose voice carries more weight than just about anyone else in Jewish culture and in society. So Nicodemus, all this to say is, uh, Jesus is having a conversation with one of the top guys in the Jewish world. And he comes to him at night. Why? Because the Pharisees and Jesus constantly butted heads, as we'll see as we continue to look throughout Scripture. Because the Pharisees were all about, and we'll dive into this as we get throughout, you see this sprinkled throughout these 21 verses. The Pharisees were all about the outside. The Pharisees were all about, because keep in mind, this was the religious establishment. These were the people who society was looking at as, you know God. You are the ones we go to for our understanding and our explanation of God. You are religion. But the Pharisees were all about religion, not about faith. The Pharisees were all about what are you wearing, what are you eating, who are you talking to, where are you sitting, where do you pray, how much do you give, how publicly do you give. They were all about the external appearances. As we see, Jesus is all about internal transformation. And so the Pharisees and Jesus constantly butted heads. And this is such a great snapshot of what to come, because keep in mind, this is very early on in Jesus' ministry. As we've looked at his life chronologically, this is really, John chapter 2 talked about his first miracle and his kind of first exposure to the public, but you really, you've had Jesus' baptism, then he was out in the wilderness tempted, then you had the miracles in John 2, and now you have this conversation. So this conversation isn't happening at the end of Jesus' time. This is happening at the start. This is a precursor of what's to come. And Nicodemus comes to him at night, because he's not ready for people to know that he's interested in what Jesus has to say. And it's very telling what he says to Christ. He says he asks, he doesn't even ask a question. Listen to what he says. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Right? So he's, he's willing to admit, okay, there's something about you. There's something different. I can't really deny the physical things you've done. I, I can't, we can't deny that when you were baptized, the heavens opened up and the Spirit of God descended and the voice of God sounded. We can't deny that. We can't deny the, the miracle you did at the wedding in Cana where you turned water into wine. We can't deny when you physically cleansed the temple and what you talked about. We can't deny these things. But I'm, I'm not ready to say, did you catch what he said? He said, clearly you're a teacher who God is with, what, what's going on? Right? He's not ready to say you're God. He's not ready to say you're the Messiah, but he's intrigued by the person of Jesus. And so he's asking, how do I respond to the person of Jesus? How do I respond to Jesus in front of me? Because clearly there's something going on here, but in order to acknowledge you as Messiah, I'd have to admit that I've been wrong. And he's not ready to do that. And so he says... Okay, you're, you're a good teacher, but... And he kind of leaves it open-ended. And Jesus bypasses that entirely, and he goes right after Nicodemus' heart. And he talks about salvation. He talks about being born again. And Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, the Pharisees fully expected to see the kingdom of God. 
So this would have been, when Jesus says this to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, this would have made Nicodemus sit up straight in his chair and pay attention. Because as a Pharisee, he automatically assumed, I'm going to be first in line to see the kingdom of God. I'm born into Jewish heritage. I'm a Sanhedrin. I'm on top of the Sanhedrin. Everything, all the externals of my life guarantee that I will see the kingdom of God. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, no, no. Unless one is born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And look at how Nicodemus replies. This also, this reveals his heart. This reveals the pharisaical heart. He immediately goes to, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, automatically goes to, what works can I do? What can I physically do to bring this about? There's got to be something that I can do to bring this about. There has to be some work I can do, some action I can do, some rule, some process, some checklist that I can make my way through, and then I'll be able to get into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, no. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And a second time, Nicodemus asks, he says, how can these things be? Because he can't bring, it's not that he can't intellectually understand Jesus, what Jesus is saying. His heart cannot accept this notion of salvation apart from works. The Pharisees could not accept this idea of the Messiah not caring about the external trappings. The Pharisees were all about external holiness. Jesus was all about internal transformation. And the Pharisees could not bring their hearts to accept that. And so Nicodemus asks, he says, how can this be? And this is where Jesus, this is the final part of this. So this is the first section, right? Verses 1 through 10, where you see the heart of the Pharisees. You see, and as the teacher of Israel, as the Sanhedrin, this was representative. This was indicative of the problems with the heart of Israel as a whole. So you see in a snapshot the heart of Israel that Jesus is dealing with. And it transitions into the solution. Jesus says to him in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? It's a heart issue. It's not a mind issue. Nicodemus can comprehend the words that Jesus is saying, but he can't bring his heart to acknowledge the truth of who Jesus is. And this, because when we talk about externals, think of what, and this is why, man, this is why I love studying the Bible, right? What do I say time and time again? It all builds on each other. It all ties together. Think of the sermons we've done thus far in this series. Think of the sermon on baptism. You guys remember the sermon on baptism? Anybody present for that, right? When we talked about baptism, we talked about what does baptism symbolize? It symbolizes dead in sin, alive in Christ, transformation. And then last week, we looked at the external versus the internal the conversation between Jesus and Nathaniel, where externally, Nathaniel scoffed at the idea that the Messiah could be from Nazareth. Externally, Nathaniel completely dismissed the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus is able to look at him, and Jesus isn't buttering him up. Jesus isn't giving a false compliment. Jesus is able to look at Nathaniel and truthfully, genuinely say, Behold, here is an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Because Jesus is looking internally. Jesus' whole life and ministry is a stark juxtaposition of the externals of this world and the internals that Jesus cares about. 
What verse did we read last week? We read Romans 2, 28 through 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, for Nicodemus as a Pharisee, he was guaranteed the kingdom of heaven because he was born a Jew. Anyone who was born a Gentile wasn't getting in. That was how the Pharisees defined holiness and rightness before God. Are you born a Jew or are you born a Gentile? Jesus comes along and says, that's external. I don't care about external. Let's talk about the internal. No one is a Jew who is circumcised outwardly. A Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. It's about the personal, internal transformation in response to the person of Christ. And Jesus is telling this to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus doesn't believe because his heart will not allow him to accept that he's been wrong and that there's nothing he can do to earn this by a meritocracy. When you look at this distinction of Jew and Gentile, consider Ephesians 4, 17 through 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Is that verse describing Gentiles or is that verse describing Pharisees? That's why this is so hard for Nicodemus to wrap his mind around. Because it's not a matter of the external, it's a matter of the internal heart. And Jesus points this out to the question that Nicodemus didn't even ask. He goes to the root of things. And when I talk about I want us to be like Jesus, this is one example. I want us to look at the root of things. I want us to be concerned with people's hearts, not with winning arguments. Not with proving that we know more knowledge than other people, but I want us to be concerned with people's hearts. I want us to be willing to redirect the conversation to get to the heart of things, because that's what Jesus does here. And so what is this answer to unbelief? If the problem that we see in Pharisees, that we see in Nicodemus, and again, I say this over and over, these were the religious people. So if you're talking today, if you're talking in modern terms, it wouldn't be Pharisees, it would be the American church, it would be the religious people. We have to be willing to look at ourselves and say, where is my heart before the Lord? It's not about the clothes I wear, it's not about the externals, it's not about the motions I go through. Where is my heart before the Lord? That's what matters. And when you get to this issue of unbelief in a heart that will not accept that Jesus is sovereign Lord, Jesus lays out the solution. This is in verses 14 through verses 14 through 17. Jesus says, or I'm sorry, I'm going to start in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Brief aside, that's a great verse. Jesus directly deals with the claims of false messiahs. People who are like, oh, he's gone up into heaven. He is a messiah. Jesus says, no, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. I am the only messiah. Jesus makes that clear. He says, no one has ascended from heaven, in, into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Another brief aside, when you talk about, well, aren't we supposed to, like, I spend most of my time in the New Testament? No, the, the Bible is one coherent, cohesive story about God, about Jesus. So even though it might not specifically mention Jesus... 
The serpent being lifted up in the desert. This is something, keep in mind, keep in mind always the context. Jesus is talking to a biblical authority. He's talking to Nicodemus, who as the teacher of Israel, would have known the Old Testament better than just about anyone. Right? So Nicodemus would have been very familiar with this monumental moment in Israel's history of Moses lifting up the bronze serpent in the desert to save the people. Nicodemus would have known this story, and Jesus is saying, that was pointing to me. Everything you've read, everything you've studied has been pointing to me. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And tucked in the middle of those four verses is what I think is probably the most famous verse in the Bible, right? Everybody knows John 3.16. I mean, if you've been to a baseball game, you've seen John 3.16 behind home plate. If you've watched college football, you've seen it in the stands. This is the verse that the world knows. But I want to take some time and I want to make sure we really understand this verse. Because there's so much depth to this verse. And I want to start with the two halves of it. For God so loved the world... And there are some modern translations, and I'm going to explain why I really prefer translations that leave it as, for God so loved the world. Because sometimes people will be like, that's kind of vague. That's kind of nebulous. I like a translation that specified, like, for God so loved the world. I want a translation that makes it a little more clear. Well, let's look at this to make sure we understand it. I want us to be people of biblical literacy and understanding. And if you're watching this at home, if you're here and you've never encountered this, I want you to understand the beauty that is packed into these words. Would you mind throwing up the next slide, Sherry, and nobody freak out and run out of the building? This is the original Greek. I know you're not Greek scholars. I'm not a Greek scholar, okay? But I want to make sure we understand because there are some modern translations that take, for God so loved the world, and they, they rephrase it as, for God loved the world so much. For God loved the world with this great quantity. And they rephrase it in that way. And guess what? Those translations are they're kind of correct. And then you have other translations that emphasize a different aspect. And they phrase it as, for this is the way in which God loved the world. For this is how God loved the world. And they make it all about the mode of love that God showed and how he represented it. it and guess what? They're correct. How can they both be correct if they're saying different things? Let's look at the original language. So this word at the start, and I think hutos, hutus, is how I heard it when I clicked on internet pronunciation guides. So if there's anyone in here who speaks Greek and can correct me, feel free to do so now. But if not, we're just going to pretend like I'm right and it's hutus. Uh, but so that word hutus, right, that is most almost always used to refer to the manner in which something is done. So then the translations that phrase it as this is how this is the mode in which God loved the world, they would be correct because that word used in the original language is talking about the manner. But if we go to the next slide and we move a couple words down, this is host, hoste, hosti. And this is a very specific, very unique Greek modifier that adds on an emphasis to the beginning idea that places an emphasis on an actual, specific, unusual event. And so if you looked at this word on its own, it would be talking about the quantity of God's love 
that started this whole idea, right? So if you look at this word on its own, the translations that say God loved the world so much would be correct. But you can't look at this word on its own in the same way that you can't look at that first word on its own because they're not on their own. And when you put the two together, what do you get? You get a modified description of God's love that is referring to the entire holistic nature of God's love. It is referring to both the manner and the magnitude. Uh, there are numerous, I mean, there's, there's some great theologians who have spent a long time studying this. Gundry and Howell wrote some fascinating stuff. I mean, if you're interested in stuff like this, let me know and I'll give you these guys' names. But Gundry and Howell summarize, I think they're one sentence, I'm going to quote them, it's fantastic. The sense and syntax of the, to, of the joint Greek construction focuses on the nature of God's love, addressing its mode, intensity, and extent. It is both the degree in which God loved the world and the manner in which God loved the world. It's talking about God loved the world so much, but it's also talking about God sacrificed. So that's why I prefer for God so loved the world. Because if you use one or the other, you're missing out on half of what makes this verse so incredible. And why? Sam, why is it important? Raise your hand if you honestly think this is going to come up in your conversation at work tomorrow. Somebody's going to be like, hey, could you explain to me the Greek in John 3.16? So Sam, why are you wasting my time talking about this? Because we are called to live as Jesus lived. We are called to love as God loves. And so we need to understand how God loves and we need to understand that for God so loved the world is talking about the vast, infinite quantity of God's love. And make no mistake, we are not going to reflect God's love perfectly. Let's take that right off the table. I'm not going to do it perfectly. You're not going to do it perfectly. There, done. You don't have to worry about it. But that's our standard. Our standard is God's love. Our standard is reflecting and imitating God's love to this world. And so if God's love is understood as vast, as infinite, as a quantity that we can't even fathom, then my love to a degree should represent and reflect that vastness. The world should be able to look at the church and look at the Christian and see a vastness of love, a quantity of love that can only be described as so much. And what's the other half? The manner in which God loved. God loved sacrificially. God loved in humility. God loved in mercy and in grace. And so in the same way, the world should be able to look at the American church. The world should be able to look at us as Christians and they should see sacrificial, humble, merciful, gracious love. The world should be able to look at the Christian and see mercy. They should be able to see grace reflected in the love that we show. They should see sacrifice in the life of the Christian. And I'm not necessarily talking about a physical sacrifice of my life. Truthfully, I don't ever expect to have to lay down my physical life because of the blessings and the protections afforded us by this country. I don't, I'm not worried about the government kicking down the door and dragging me off to jail to prison, like imprison me and torture me. I'm not. There are pastors this morning who that's in the back of their mind. Pray for them. But I'm not talking about a physical sacrifice here. I'm talking about an emotional sacrifice, a mental sacrifice. Christians, are we willing to lose arguments rather than demonstrate that I know more statistics than you? Are we willing to sacrifice our time? Yeah, it's easy to give my money. Here's a check. Now I don't have to think about it. I told you, I've grown up in the church. I'm not afraid of talking about hard topics. I have grown up in the church. I have yet to encounter a single church in my life 
that has more volunteers than they need. I have yet to encounter a single church in my life that does not have a problem with their people being willing to serve. Are we willing to sacrifice our time? Are we willing to sacrifice our ego, our pride when we're engaging in the world around us? That's what I'm talking about. That's why it's important that we understand John 3.16. Because if this is how God loved, and I'm called to love as how God loved, then I better understand the quantity and the manner of my love. And then the second half. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall have eternal life. Whoever believes, that more literally translates to whoever believes into the name. And it's not just a mental belief. It's not just a, I intellectually acknowledge and accept that Jesus is Lord. That's important. Don't get me wrong. You've heard me talk about this. I hate the anti-intellectual movement that the church went through in the 90s and the early 2000s. I think we're called to study scripture. I think we're called to be students of the Bible. Our love for God should include our minds. But believes the name, it doesn't stop at, I, okay, I mentally accept that Jesus is God. Believes the name, believe into the name. It involves trust. It involves commitment to the Lord. It involves submission to the Lord as sovereign. It's saying, I mentally acknowledge you as sovereign Lord. Therefore, I emotionally and mentally and entirely and physically submit myself to you. I am committed to you. I have received a new nature in you that has transformed me. And I obey. My life looks differently because I have believed into the name. And that's why it's important for us to know the entirety of John 3.16. Because it's a verse that we can memorize and recite. But if we don't understand the path that it lays out, if we don't understand the framework that that verse lays out for us in how we are to love the world, we're missing out on John 3.16. If we don't understand that this love for Jesus, this profession of faith in Christ is meant to transform us, we are missing out on John 3.16. And if we don't understand the two halves of John 3.16, quite frankly, why'd you bother memorizing it? If you've memorized it just so you can say, I know it, what's the good in that? Jesus isn't meant to stop at our minds. He's not meant to stop at, okay, I memorized a couple of words, I'm good. No, it's meant to be a belief that radically transforms us, that changes everything. And to bring this back, this is why Nicodemus and the Pharisees struggled with it so much. Because they were all about the external. Jesus was all about the internal transformation. And he goes on to talk about it. He goes on to talk about it. These are the consequences. So these are the results. If we've got the problem of unbelief in a hardened heart, and then we've got the solution of Christ, the solution of grace and mercy. It's not about if you are here today, if you're listening online, and you're thinking that you can work your way into heaven based on your own merit, you are dead wrong, and you will drive yourself miserable trying to do so. There is so much freedom in knowing that it's not a checks and balances. Think about what heaven is. Heaven is, I mean, eternity in heaven is eternal relationship with the presence of God. God who is perfect holiness. And as such, no sin in the smallest iota can be in His presence. So if I thought that I had to work my way into heaven to work my way into perfect holiness, I would be miserable. The, the weight of that, the impossibility of that, there's not a person who ever has lived, is living, or could live who could do that. 
So there is beauty and freedom and learning that the solution is grace and mercy in the person of Christ. Salvation is offered through Christ and Christ alone. Last week I asked Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what are they called? Gospels. What does gospel mean? Good news. What do we do with good news? We share it. Okay, well, what is that good news that we share? John 3.16. John 3.16. John 3.17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. That is the good news. The good news is that it's not about me. It's not about my own white knuckling, gritting my teeth. If I just work hard enough, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and get into heaven based on good old-fashioned grit and work ethic. And that's very hard for our country to accept. It's very hard for a lot of people in the world to accept, but I think it's very hard for our country to accept because we preach, pull yourself up from the bootstraps, just grit and bear it, you know, nose to the grindstone. If you're not working a 14-hour day, somebody else is. So it is very hard for us to accept that there's nothing we can do, but that's the good news. The good news is that if we're a sinner, we can't do anything to get into heaven. But God made a way. That is the gospel that must define our lives, define our conversations, define our interactions with the world around us. And what are the results of all of this? You have two options. I talked about the whole story of the Bible. It's a juxtaposition of Christ versus the externals of the world. And you see that in the rest of this conversation. Because keep in mind, he's still talking to Nicodemus. This is all one conversation. He says, this is, this is verse 19. Here, I'll start in verse 18. This is the final section of the conversation. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. Why did the Pharisees have such a hard problem with Jesus? Because they didn't want to come into the light. They didn't want to shine the light on a hard heart that refused to admit, yeah, I think I'm better than them because I give more than them. I'm better than him because my clothes are nicer than his. Nobody wants to admit that. Nobody wants to come into the light and have that darkness exposed. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the results of all of this, you've got two options. You've got condemnation or commendation. If you do not believe, you are already condemned. There's no easy way around it. There's no, there's no other option. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you will not be in heaven. But I've been a good person. I've even given to charities. I've, I've given my time, my money. So what if I, I never believed in God? I've lived a great life. You're going to be in hell. Do you believe that? If you believe that, does the urgency of that drive you to do something about it? If you believe that there is one way into heaven, it is Jesus, and anyone who does not believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior is going to hell, statistically speaking, you probably know more non-Christians than you think. And I'll, I'll say this, because I've really, I've only ever lived in the Bible Belt. There's a whole lot of nominal Christianity going on out there. Within our own families, within our friends, our co-workers, 
But if we believe that those who do not believe are condemned, then we should be burdened to do something about that. Because that should break our heart. I mean, I think of, I think of friends I know who, as far as I know, don't believe in Jesus. And it, it destroys me. And when I talk to them, I ask them about it. Hey, since the last time we talked, where are you? How are things going? Do you have any questions? Why? Because I would rather you get mad at me and ignore my phone calls for a couple months than end up in hell. I would rather look like a fool. I would rather have to say to someone, you know what, that's a great question. I don't know the answer. Let me get back to you. Then risk, well, I don't want to look like I don't know what I'm talking about, so I'll just I'll let them wind up in hell. And guys, people are hungry for this. Don't believe... Mm, uh, all right, I'm going to speak very strongly, but know that I say so in love. And if you've ever said anything like this, I do not mean this personally. Stop believing the cowardly crap that people don't want to hear about God. I think it's absolute cowardice to say, oh, well, I'm sure they're not interested in God. Stop listening to that lie. Because people, people are hurting. This world is in so much pain and anguish. And they want to have these conversations. I don't know, I shared this on Facebook a couple weeks ago, if, if you missed it. Back in March, I was doing one of our Thursday live chats, and a guy rode by the street on his bicycle, right? Anybody remember this? Bicycle man? And he needed help with a flat tire? And he found out I was a pastor from Troy? Guess who showed up on my porch two weeks ago when I was sitting out there reading? Bicycle man. And this was how the conversation started. You're a pastor. Help me understand why the world is so angry. Literally, not, hey, how you doing? I'm out there reading. Pulls his bike up to my porch and he says, okay, pastor, help me understand why the world is so angry. Help me understand why there is so much violence in the world. He said, because if this is the world, I don't want it. And we ended up talking about Jesus. And we ended up talking about sin. And we ended up talking about hate and anger and violence and fear. People are desperately in need of a savior. The solution is laid out in this conversation with Nicodemus. We have to be willing to have these conversations. And we have to be willing to allow our lives to shine. And this is when I talk about the consequences, when I talk about the results. We looked at condemnation. I want to look at the commendation. So what happens for those of us who have believed, for those of us who have professed Jesus as Savior, who have believed into the name, we have gone beyond the mental acknowledgement and acceptance, but we have gone into the life transformation John introduced it in his apostle in chapter or in his apostle. John the apostle introduced it in his gospel in John chapter 1 verses 12 to 13, but to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. Born again, that phrase born again when we talk about I'm a born again Christian, that literally means born of above, born of God. When Jesus talks to Nicodemus and he talks about being born of the Spirit, that's referring to the spiritual washing and regeneration of our soul that happens at the moment of salvation. At the moment of conversion, our soul is washed. We are regenerated by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, our Savior. We are new. When he uses this idea of born again into new life, we need to understand that. And I mean, literally. That this is a new life. This is not the same person I used to be. We looked at it with baptism. We looked at it with last week. 
Listen to these verses. This is 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again to a living hope. We are in a time right now where the world is in desperate need of hope. Can they look at our lives and see living hope? Or do your words reflect the attitude of everyone else around you? Do your words, do your actions, do your posts, do the conversations you're having, the reactions you're showing, do they reflect the same lack of hope that is crippling the world? Or have you been born again to a living hope? This is not a dead hope. We do not worship a dead Savior. Jesus is still not up on the cross. We have a living Savior. We have a living hope. Titus 3, 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Here it is again. If you, if you still think, I'm going to white knuckle my way into heaven. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing. Here's that idea, born of the Spirit, washing, purification. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. If you have professed Christ as Savior, if you have received salvation, you are new. You are different. Do not accept the lies that the enemy tries to whisper into your ear of, remember what you've done? Remember where you've been? Because it's not about that. We have been washed, we have been purified, we have been regenerated. You are not, Christians do not, I hate, and I use that word intentionally, I hate when I hear Christians say things like, well, I'm just an angry person. No, the old you may have been, but the new you has been washed and regenerated. I'm just an impatient person. I'm just a lustful person. I'm just, no, you're not. You are a new creation in Christ. You've been washed, you've been purified, you've been regenerated. When we sang that song, it's your breath in my lungs. I love that one line. This goes back to, if you remember, anybody remember, we're going to throw back. Anybody remember the class we did on Hebrew words? Right? We did that class on eight Hebrew words every Christian should know. You know the Hebrew word for breath and the Hebrew word for spirit are frequently synonymous? It's the Hebrew word ruach. And there are passages in Scripture that use the same word, but translate it breath, physical breath, and spirit, spirit of God. Isn't that so cool? Doesn't that transform that song lyric? It's your breath in our lungs. It's your spirit in me that gives me new physical breath. I am a new life in Christ. Does the world see that when it looks at us? Think about that. When the world looks at the American church, does it see a life that looks differently than the lives around it? The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And quite simply, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old's dead and gone and buried. Praise the Lord. You want to talk to the old Sam? You can't. He's dead. There's no meeting the old Sam. He doesn't exist anymore. If you've accepted Christ, the old Jim is gone. The old April's gone. The old Adeline's gone. I'm not married to the old Adeline. 
I know the new Adeline. Are we a new creation in Christ? The answer is yes. So does your life reflect that? This is what Jesus lays out for Nicodemus. This is what is so hard for his pharisaical mind to, to wrap itself around. It's what is so hard for his pharisaical heart to, to come to terms with and to accept. And Nicodemus actually has a positive story. We see redemption in the story of Nicodemus. I love his arc throughout Scripture. But right now at this moment, he's come to Jesus and he just he can't bring his heart to accept this truth. He's a member of the religious class. I weep to think of how many American churches and American Christians are walking around and they're asking the same exact questions Nicodemus is. And if there are those of you this morning who have been asking these questions, I want you to understand that in Christ, you're a new creation. There's beauty in that. There's power in that. There's freedom in that. And if you're listening to this, if you're online, if you're here in person and you've never understood what what the hook is, What's the big deal with salvation? (laughs) Newness of life. You can't possibly tell me that you look at the hate and the anger and the fear and the panic and the desperation of the world around you and you want that. Who would want that? So if you have questions about salvation, if you have questions about this beauty of newness of life, come talk to us because that's the good news that we believe in. And if we believe in it, then we ought to be transformed lives. What's it say? What's the final final verse there? Verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their works have been carried out in God. Here's a challenge for us this week. I want you to ask yourself, really ask, I mean, look in the mirror, physically ask yourself, is it clearly seen that my works are carried out in God? And I'd like you to read Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. I love Ephesians 4. This is, I'm trying to think of how many chapters I've said are in my top five favorite. I think I still have room. I think Ephesians 4 is in my top five favorite chapters of the Bible. So this week, let's, let's read Ephesians. Read the whole chapter, but let's really focus on it. If you're saying you don't have time, and you go, I don't have time for a whole chapter, we'll talk about that later, but we'll start with 17 to 32. Read Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. And when you ask yourself this question, is it clear that my works are carried out in God? Ask that question from John 3 with these verses, as you're reading these verses, and ask yourself, do these verses describe me? And it's a simple prayer. Lord, teach me to live out these verses. There's nothing wrong with simple prayers. There's nothing wrong with one sentence broken pleas before the Lord. Lord, teach me to live out these verses. Refine me, purify me, mold me. I believe that I have been washed in you. I believe that I have been regenerated in you. So in this newness of life, let these verses define who I am. Let it be clearly seen, to go back to John 3, let it be clearly seen that my works are carried out in God. The world needs to be able to look. They don't need to look at us and see perfection. They need to be able to look at us and see reflection of Christ. 
They need to be able to come to us and have honest conversations about who God is and why He is so important. They need to understand that this isn't just something we profess to believe. This is something that has radically transformed who we are. Jesus had this conversation with Nicodemus. He didn't let it stay at the surface level, right? Nicodemus was kind of wading in, dipping his toe into the waters. Jesus did a cannonball right into the deep end. Let's be Christians who skip the wading in and go into the deep end. This has to, I mean, this, this has to, to define us. Who God is, who Jesus is, the salvation He has made available through His Son. This must be the hallmark on our lives. That is the good news. That Jesus saved us from our sins so that we could spend eternity in heaven with God. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you so loved us. That you loved us with a magnitude we can't even begin to comprehend. I mean, I, I confess, I can understand laying down my life for my wife or my best friends. It begins to stretch me to think about laying it down for random acquaintances. It is hard to wrap my mind around laying my life down for the people who hate me and make fun of me and, and are my enemy. So God, we are, we are so thankful that you loved us with such an infinite quantity of love. And we are so thankful that you loved us sacrificially, entirely, holistically, that you loved us in mercy and in grace. We thank you that we don't have to try and work our way into heaven, that it's not about merit, that it's not about Jesus plus anything. We thank you that salvation is about Jesus plus nothing. And the beauty of life that is in that. We thank you for washing us and for generating a newness of life in us. And so God, we ask that we would learn to increasingly abide in that newness of life. Mold us, make us, conform us to the image of your Son. Let us seek out the Nicodemuses in our own lives and let us have these conversations. We want to see your kingdom grow. Let it begin with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.